Hi, this is your host, Dr. Jennifer Jones, with the Secret Life of Neurohospitalist podcast. For today's episode, I'm talking with two of my colleagues, Dr. Melanie Greenway and nurse practitioner Aubrey Donahue about remote teleneurology work. Dr. Greenway is the head of our teleneuro operations, working to develop smooth and reliable processes and good relationships with the 12 or so outside hospitals we cover. Aubrey is heartbreakingly leaving our group in order to have a better schedule and work from home as a teleneurology consultation provider. I wanted to talk to them about their relationships to this technology because at least some small part of me fears that seeing patients remotely is just the beginning of the end of neurohospitalist. With advancing AI and given that so much of neurology involves synthesizing information, MRI findings, labs, meds, etc., with the physical exam and then recognizing a pattern, this seems like something that AI could definitely be trained to do one day. But until then, we're going to be doing it in person and remotely, and the differences in those two is some of what we're talking about today. Let's just jump in. Aubrey? Yeah, so you're leaving to do full-time teleneurology. The expectation from them is, from the company, is it's a seven-on, seven-off schedule. They say it's patient-facing from eight to five, so I'm, you know, we'll be on camera in those hours. Um, I will be literally rounding, as I do now, in an inpatient neurohospitalist position in hospitals in North Carolina that don't have neurology coverage, in-person per- in neurology coverage. It'll be the same structure where I'm paired with a neurologist physician on service for that week, and then um, they see more of the emergent neuro, and we see more of the follow-ups and routine neuro consults. The NPs do. And the, the neurologist that you're paired with is also teleneurologist. Yes, everyone is remote. Yeah. Right. And you're not on for emergencies. No. You're just rounding on just patients rounding you've been seeing. And then doing routine consults in the afternoon. Okay. Yeah, after your morning rounds are done. And, and you're doing this all from home. All from home, 100% remote. So everyone that I've met and interfaced with from the company has all been via Zoom. How long have, have people at the company been doing this? The company itself has like morphed over the years, I guess. It was Specialists on Call, which was one of the earliest uh, telemedicine um, groups. And, and they have one of the largest teleneurology physician groups in the country. And so they have a lot of physicians that have been with them for a while, but the APP program is new. And so they're branching out into having daily neurology coverage as opposed to just emergent neuro and one-time consults. And that's where the APPs are coming in. Yeah, okay. Let's get Melanie into the conversation here. Melanie Greenway, one of our hospitalists, been here, neurohospitalists, been here now like a year and a half? Two years. Two years, yes, okay. Just over two years. Yeah, and you have taken over our telestroke service you're taking you're taking yes. charge of it i am i am it wasn't a medical it wasn't a hostile takeover it was not no <laughs> it was by request <laughs> yeah yeah and you've taken that on and done quite a lot with it already i mean we've expanded we now service 13 regional hospitals um, through telestroke that um, is all done in-house so it makes it kind of a unique program where more and more Hospitals are turning to these third-party companies like uh, Aubrey's going to be working for. We're trying to keep the local hospitals in with the local neurologists 
um, because we're going to be ultimately the ones taking care of these patients when they transfer from the small hospital after TPA or um, if they need thrombectomy, they'll be coming to us anyway. So it's good for us to, to see them and tell a stroke ahead of time. Right, I, right. Yeah. And so this is all local um, within our catchment area. Mm-hmm. Has there been any talk or are you interested in going further than that? <laughs> no, I, I think I, I, I think regional health care is often the best health care. So um, I think at least the goals of our program, from my understanding, is to work within the region. Yeah. And try to give the best, most continuous neurology care to, to our patients in the region. So. Yeah, because I agree with the, um, the idea that having a patient transferred to us because they were seen by some contracted yeah. neuro hospital uh, you know, service who may not have a, an understanding of what, what they are committing the patient to when they say, yeah. oh, you need to transfer them for an angiogram, you know, because it's a migraine or whatever. But, you know, well, it could be vasculitis, you know, right. like what I guess um, I'm thinking about is, like you said, local care is good. But wh- what's your area going to be covering? That, that's actually an interesting point because it is part of the mission of this company is to be able to keep patients in their medical home. So to avoid the kind of shipment of patients, if you can, because there's no neurology, no neurology coverage, or the neurologist goes off service, there's nobody, you know, in these little hospitals to round on them and to really at least, you know, try to, to give them the, the care that they can probably get in that hospital if they had a neurology consult, like, that was consistent, you know, not just one and done consult. Right. So, yeah, that was interesting to me because having been on the receiving end of these patients who come from so far away and then it's such a nightmare to try and figure out, are they going to do rehab locally? Or are they going to try and, you know, ship them back to or bus them or, you know, ambulance them back to where they came from? I agree. It's sort of, even though it's remote and they're further away, the goal is to keep them there if possible. That's Obviously, a stated mission, they, yeah. like as a part of your work. I mean, if they yeah, need yeah. tertiary level care, then, you know, sometimes your recommendation as the provider that they're telling me is, yeah, they need to be transferred, but to yeah. try and minimize that if possible. Not just to do it. I guess that's the fear is like everything can become sort of CYA or, you know, algorithmic. Right. Well, it could be ABC, so hence, you know, and it, you right. could have a, a chat bot do that, right. you know, you yeah. know. Which we probably will be having soon right. enough. Yes, probably will. <laughs> um, well, how much do you know about all that? Like, how how many hospitals are you going to so be? I'm covering? starting at just one hospital. Okay. But um, the goal, I think, will be like five or six hospitals. But they only have, you know, each hospital only has a few patients each each day, so you kind of conglomerate them together. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they say that. Um, all our facilities that they work with have MRI and have EEG capability. Um, yeah, but just knowing like what your resources yeah, so are exactly. at any your, given your, hospital. Your goal is to sort of, when you start, you know, to connect with the hospitalists, obviously, and get a relationship with them because that's who you'll be working most directly with. And then I think it's going to be a new learning curve for me, and that's another thing that I kind of like to do every two years is like I like being in school. I like the, the learning situation. So yeah. I think it'll be interesting to kind of, try and tap into that matrix and understand who's where and yeah that kind of thing yeah so and so melanie with that with that kind of question in mind with like each place's resources and stuff you know we're increasingly finding 
you know, some hospitals might keep their post-TPA and some yeah. aren't, and I have a hard time remembering it. <laughs> you tried to make us some sort of I cheat did. sheet, but I'm too you. lazy to find it. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is hard, especially because what we do, unlike what Aubrey does, is we just do emergencies. Yeah. So Aubrey will be focusing more on non-emergencies, but we have to do emergencies. So right. everything we're doing is acute telestroke. So not only um, are you asked to see someone unexpectedly because they're having an acute stroke, or we think they are, um, but it's taking away from your day. So what I have found is I'm often in the middle of a very important conversation with a patient and their family when the pager goes off and I have to go into a telestroke. And then I have to know, okay, well, where in Western North Carolina are, are they? Where is this patient? What hospital are they at? Do they have CT perfusion or not? Because some of them do and some of them don't. And do they have tenecta place or alta place? Right. Because that's a question. Right. Because not all the hospitals use the same thrombolytic. And then from there, are they going to keep the patient at their hospital or are they going to transfer them to us? Um, and then how are they going to get there? And that, that time from the time they get to the first hospital to the time they get to us is so key for patient outcomes. Yeah, especially if it's for thrombectomy for or something. Thrombectomy, yeah. yeah, specifically that door in, door out time. Because well, because, is. and I was just thinking like some part of what I was, as I was thinking about this conversation, I was thinking how I, I'm not proud of my natural tendency to like um, not want to, you know, embrace the major changes in how we do things. A little resistant, you know, not loving the tele neurology because, again, it feels it feels a little bit like an interruption to what I'm supposed to be doing. But I almost think I just have to get a mindset change and like that's not an interruption. That's also what I'm supposed to be doing. But then the same things like the technology of it, which I think you both must have a little bit more of an intrinsic like satisfaction of figuring out like the technological barriers that occur and to me that all feels like just something obstacle in the way of where I need to be and I, I get no satisfaction and just have a tantrum. Yeah, <laughs> I, I do remember, I have to share this story. Um, when you were doing a telestroke, I don't know, six months ago or so, and I could hear you because you sit next to me, you couldn't get the images to come up. Yeah. And I don't know if you remember this, I but don't. the ER doctor was on the phone with you who kept saying, well, I have pushed the images. I know they've been pushed. They told me they pushed them several times, and you're like, well, I keep doing it, and they're not coming up. And in my mind, you're right. I do get a little satisfaction from figuring out these technological problems, and I just couldn't help myself. Yeah. And I started searching <laughs> I do in our now. database yes. based on the patient's, um, like, uh, birth date and things like that, and I found him. Yeah. And what had happened was the technology, someone, somehow, Put, flipped the name, so they made the last name, the first name, the first name, the last name. So if you just typed in the patient's name, you're never going to find it. Right. And I, I I, can imagine just how frustrating that is. Right. But for me, it is kind of like a, oh, yeah, this is a puzzle. MacGyver. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I like that because I think I think that is a... It's um, an attitude that is in my, you know, it's a choice I can make to, you know, some things are more automatically intrinsically satisfying, like figuring out something interesting with a patient. Like, well, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, but like you can decide to be interested. That's the thing with emergent teleneuro that I couldn't imagine doing, you know, as a nurse practitioner and hats off to y'all for doing that because that is, str it's so stressful. Stressful. It's so stressful. Yeah. Being an emergent neurologist in itself is a hard thing to do. And right. then you add all these layers of technology 
when they're working perfectly is hard and then when they all start to fall apart it just gets even harder and harder yeah with the time constraints getting harder and harder so mm -hmm. there are times where i'll say no look we're just not treating acutely that's all i'm offering here i'm not yeah. offering any other consultative service like treat or don't treat that's it like have you ever noticed how a lot of the times you get a little bit of an attitude of things like well i mean we're told we're supposed to call about every stroke yeah i i think about this like um from a philosophical perspective quite often because there's uh, with just just a acute telestroke in my mind we are offering a service and we are trying to be helpful that's all we ever want to be right. helpful so i think that people should be wanting to call us but you're right it seems like there's a lot of policies and regulations put in place where sometimes the ER doctors who know what they're doing, they don't need us <laughs> yeah. for their decision making, but they feel like they're being forced into calling us. So I try to remind them that like we're not forcing them to call us. We're trying to be helpful. Right. And so it makes me wonder, um, you know, we have these protocols for code stroke activation. They're supposed to be put in place so that we don't miss patients that need to be treated for stroke but that we don't under, under or over call. But some of them are more challenging than, than I think they should be. And maybe that sort of protocol needs to be more like revolutionized to be something that gives the treating ER physician who's in the room with the patient a little bit more ownership of what's going on so they don't feel like they're trapped yeah. calling someone they don't need. Because then we're frustrated too yeah, you know, when we, we don't get be, so know. many calls. Like in the yeah. first sentence is, well, I don't think there's anything that you're going to do, but you yeah. know, and you're yeah, kind of like, I have to call you. Yeah, like, okay, yeah. Well, I don't know that you have to call me, um, but giving us back some control over that. And, and I've been talking a lot to one of our nurse coordinators who I work with closely about all this. And we're trying to kind of brainstorm what's the best strategy moving forward because all of our hospitals have their own protocol for when they're supposed to call us. And it's not uniform across the board. So then you get ER doctors working in different ERs who have different protocols to call us about. And I think just going back to the point of it all, which is that we're trying to provide a service that's useful to provide acute expert level telestroke care to as many patients as we possibly can. Right. And leave it at that. And if they think they need to call us, they should call us. If they don't think they need to call us, then they shouldn't feel so obligated. But, um, yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And, and I just wonder how that's communicated with them. And sometimes, yeah. you know, when we will have our stroke meetings and we'll talk about some case that was missed or yeah. something that went wrong, and then our stroke coordinators will go and sort of remind them about various yeah. processes. And then y you'll notice a little burst then <laughs> after that. And you it know, is hard because yeah, stroke yeah. is hard. And yeah, it yeah. In so many different ways. And, yeah. you know, we can say call if their NIH is XYZ, but then we all know we've treated stroke patients with an NIH zero yeah so i think like fine-tuning that it, it uh, protocol activation also requires fine-tuning everybody's understanding of what a stroke looks like yeah um, and, and making sure we're all on the same page and yeah, I, th I think I remember my first telestroke. I, I, I saw the patient and it just, it seemed so silly. I felt so awkward. You know, it does take some getting used to. And I walked into the room when the patient arrived at our hospital. I was like, I am your doctor, <laughs> pretending like I was a robot. So stupid. But that's how I felt a little like so, so awkward. Yeah. And you've probably done it throughout training, though, yeah. right? So yeah. you, and I noticed you're very thorough, very patient, very comprehensive and um and i tend to just kind of like 
already by the story I have already almost made up my mind before I've even seen them often, right? Yeah. Same for you. Yeah. But you're still much more patient. Yeah, you know, it's a a sharp edge that you have to ride because I do want to make sure that my telestroke exams are as good as my in-person exams, but I also don't want to waste anybody's time when acute stroke treatment is on the line. So, um, but I did, part of my fellowship and residency was training in how to do tele-neurology and telestroke. I think probably my program and, and many programs across the country have all kind of caught on to the fact that this is kind of the way of the future and not going away anytime soon. It's not, Building right. in through simulation. And then I think it was a core part of my curriculum as a stroke fellow. I'm probably overdoing it. I probably don't need to be so thorough, but it's just ingrained in me and, and just the way that I kind of learned. So, well, and, and also the other thing is that, you know, the, the other part of it is even if I know I'm not treating the patient with TPA because on the phone, I know this is the case. I want to make sure that the nurse in the room knows what they're doing. And so half of sometimes what I'm doing is providing reps for the nurses. Oh, that's so a that good way know, of looking yeah, at it too. Because because the next one they may do may be in six months or a year, but it may be a real one where I actually do really need them to know how to do visual field testing because it's going to be an important part of what I'm doing. And so getting those reps in with the nurse and, and having some time to talk them through it. And then if I know they're not a treatment candidate, I will probably take more time than most to say, oh no, you know, turn your hands this way, make sure you're not in front of the camera, just to give them more practice Yeah, yeah, that's really a good thought, too, like just recognizing the process as a worthwhile endeavor. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Even if it's not going to change what I'm doing for that particular patient, it may change things down the line. Yeah, yeah, and giving the, because the nursing, I don't know, is very inconsistent with what they're prepared yeah. to do in terms of the exam and, and stuff. And they don't get the same level of training. Right. Um, that we do, or and they very rarely do do it more than once. So right. making sure that they have a good experience, so that they're not nervous the next time it happens, and more confident, and comfortable the next time it happens is like half of what I'm doing. In that there. is so good. Now, Aubrey, um, what training? Like, what are you being taught for doing the exam, and like, what kind of help are you going to have at bedside? Yeah, so that's I'm kind of listening to this conversation partially as like, oh, it's a good nugget that I should take with me in clinical practice when I'm doing teleneurology. And that's part of, I think, why I will like it or why it might be a good fit for it is making those connections is something that I think I'm pretty good at, you know, with patients and, and staff. and You definitely are. Taking time for teaching moments and things like that. But um, so my training, I have a month of training. A lot of it will be shadow shifts. So I had a lot of questions during my interview process about, well, how do you do, yeah, like how do you do a good neuro exam remotely, you know? Right. And I mean, I think it's just also just from sitting in close proximity to y'all and seeing y'all do it multiple times a day, you do the best exam you can. I mean, I don't think in any realm it can be as good as an in-person exam, but um, I do think most of the things that you need to really see, you can see on the camera. And apparently these cameras, you can like zoom in really close and um, there's even like a stethoscope attached to it that if they put it on the patient's chest, like you hear it on your end. Well, does it work to get reflexes? No, reflexes were with a stethoscope. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> isn't that what it's for? Isn't that what every neurologist uses their stethoscope for? Right. Yes, I know they were kind of like reflexes. You got to get rid of, you know, right. get that out of your mind that you're going to have good a good reflex exam. Right. So. Um, and I remember getting my hackles up once, you know, years ago when I was in the outpatient, 
And um, somebody said, oh, you don't need an otoscope inpatient. You're never going to look in there, you know, at their fundus. And I was just like, well, that is horrible. That is not right. Because I felt like in the outpatient, yeah. you do that. I agree. Right? Headache from and clinic, stuff. I feel like, yeah. I, like I'm the one who knows where the, yeah, like where it is on the unit, you know. Yeah. Like, no, yeah. I do use it. I mean, I probably use it Infrequently. once every three months or so. Yeah. But I feel like our outpatient hybrid folks are the ones who use it more than anybody else. Right. Yeah. Right. And I remember thinking like, that's offensive, you know, but it is, it is increasingly, uh, you know, clear how, yeah, even remotely you right. can tell a lot about a neuro yeah. status just by observing the person in the room. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's sort of one of our elder physicians on our team, you know, that's, that's a lot of his exam anyways, is, is observation. Yeah. And, I mean, I guess after years and years and years of doing it, you sort of have a, a sixth sense about the exam a bit more. You know, it, it is kind of like, okay, so these teleneurology capabilities, stroke, and then more general, you know, you could see that things could eventually become more and more consolidated where like, and then, I mean, that's not even to consider things like AI and, you know, really advanced generative systems that can do what we can do because it's all pattern recognition, you know, like what we're doing. And they could probably do it much more thoroughly and completely and reliably <laughs> if, the, if the input is good. And so like in some ways I could see that it would just become more and more centralized. Like, why do we need to be near, except that we need to be able to see a patient if they're going to come to us? Maybe. I mean, like, that happens, right? But why, like, with more general stuff, like, it could ultimately just become, like, one big hub in New York City covering the entire country or yeah, something, I mean, you know? I do still think that despite science and, you know, artificial intelligence and everything, especially medicine... There is just that human touch, that art of medicine. Yeah. You know, that, like, and especially coming from a nursing background, which is a caring profession, you know, it's like there is a level of caring that you have to have. And I don't know that you could program the computer to have that or to be superior to having a, a person do that. Yeah, to be um, able to listen and stuff. We're at such a, such a critical point where we're just at this launching point of who knows what's going to happen. Yeah. As far as... Um, as technology is concerned. And um, I think like the AI pattern recognition is one component of it, but there's so much subtlety to a good neurologic exam and understanding a good neurologic history. I think that's gonna be pretty challenging, I don't know. Yeah, I do yeah, think it's gonna it be isn't. challenging, you're but right. But maybe it'll be easier than we think. It was certainly hard for me to learn and I'm still learning it every day, <laughs> but maybe a computer can catch on faster than I can. But I do think, um, the more we do telemedicine, the more it, it proves itself as a viable option. I do think something's lost when you're in the computer. Um, I, I, at least when I do exams, I try very hard to make sure the patient's understanding what I say. But when they come to mission, I f often find that something was missed in translation. Right. That they then get a little bit better when I'm in person. And maybe if we did repeated um, visit through teleneurology, it would be less likely to be missed. So I'd, I'll be curious to hear Aubrey's perspective after she's done it for a while. But I think, you know, there are companies that I have heard of um, where they have physicians working in all sorts of places all around the world to help with shift work problems. So yeah. um, someone was telling me they know of a radiologist whose company will put them up in Paris for six months or something like that. And that way they can work the night shift but still be in the daytime. Uh, and do it all remotely. So obviously radiology is a little different. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's interesting as I feel like artificial intelligence and telemedicine is sort of 
it feels like we're on this like moving escalator where it's going really quickly maybe like I just learned about this a few years ago and now it's like taking over but for me remote work was something I never thought I would be I just was like during the pandemic everybody was working from home I'm like well that, that will just never be me that's not an option for me with my career and so I'm like wait maybe it, it is and that's interesting to see what that looks like yeah um, so I can't at this point you know maybe in six months we'll have this conversation again and I'll be interested to hear past me, you know, what my expectations and hopes and thoughts were and then what the actual reality of it is, because I don't know, you know, it is, it is a new frontier for me, but I do think it's just an interesting opportunity to have that I honestly never thought I would have working as a nurse practitioner in the hospital. Yeah. Well, it seems like it provides a real uh, lifestyle functionality that is hard to beat, Mm -hmm. right? Especially in our schedules, which are not ever, you know, anytime soon going to be seven on seven off. But I, I wonder how you, um, yeah, I wonder how you're going to feel without patient encounters directly. I guess, you know, one thought I have is when I went from outpatient to inpatient, my relationships with patients changed a lot. You know, I had a lot of patients who I knew very well throughout years. And then, you know, in the hospital, we're sort of interchangeable and, and the patients may or may not remember you. I mean, they remember you that week, but, you know, it's not like... And even if you do make a big impact in their lives, you're a transient person and you don't follow, we don't follow up with them and stuff like that. And that has changed and it made me realize, as I've probably said to y'all before, that sometimes I think my primary commitment almost now feels more towards our professional team than our patients, which of course our team is for our patients. But in, in some way, in my mind, things changed from the outpatient where it was like the patient and me had this relationship. Now I feel like I'm more in relationship with my colleagues and our processes in the hospital than directly with patients themselves. And in a way with teleneurology, that might be yet another thing where like your relationship becomes in some sense with the process of, you know, of the technology and how to implement that more so than the person on the other end of it. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, picturing me when I started out the same way in the clinic, one-on-one with a patient and having these patients that you see, you know, sometimes you see them every, you know, two weeks and every four weeks and every, you know, kind of really slowly weaning them from their clinic follow-up because people are just so <laughs> attached to that. And then, you know, in the hospital, I agree totally, your relationship with patients changes and, and sometimes I will see a patient in the hospital that I did see in clinic and it's almost like a weird, bizarre yeah. sort of like oh, I do have this connection with you that I forgot what that's like. So, yeah, it's like I'm almost like zooming out, and now I'm going to be zooming out again to, like, an even, you know, less, you know, of a connection with patients. But I think that'll be an interesting interesting challenge for me to see how can I create that connection. Yeah, or maybe it's with your workers or, you know, with your other tele... Yeah, I mean, you know, I definitely love going to work right now because I love the team and you guys are my friends and... um, that is something that weighs heavily on me, thinking of, you know, sitting at home all day by myself, you know, so I'll have to see how that goes. If things become increasingly more tele, which I think they will, because, you know, even in general neurology, there is not much of a need for a lot of, the, I mean, okay, neuropathy, sure, myelopathy, motor neuron, myosinate, you probably need to physically see those people. But like a lot of people, epilepsy, migraine, you know, they don't need dementia even. Some people can't physically get there very easily and Parkinson's, stuff like that. But it seems like it'll become increasingly more prevalent that we're all going to be doing this. And then I wonder what that's going to mean in terms of 
who's at a track like some of what made probably each of us go into medicine was like we love biology and we consider caring for people like a noble and satisfying thing to do and like in some ways if you know that medicine is like a good lot of technology that might have been different for me I might have been not so inclined you know yeah I, I definitely did not set out to become a physician to sit in front of a computer all day. Right. I do so much of that as a physician right now, and it drives me crazy. Yeah. I can't, I, I don't know if I had known that was going to be so much of the job or that it was going to transform into so much telework if that interest or draw would still be there. But at the same time, the more I think about it, the more interesting it becomes. Um, and teleneurology, I mean, was already going on until a stroke was already going on and then obviously through the pandemic it all just exploded and it became very interesting to see patients in their own home and I, I think one of my um, attendings from residency pointed this out he said when you're doing these tele-encounters really observe the whole situation that you're looking at and what what does that look like for them we don't see this in telestroke but when you're doing teleneurology in the outpatient setting yeah. it can provide you a whole wealth of observational interest yeah. that you would not have ever gotten otherwise. You don't see patients in their home environment when they're in the hospital or when they come to you in clinic. Um, but I, I think it's an interesting skill set to develop that the people in training now will hopefully learn more about Yeah. Um, to provide more care uh, that may be better <laughs> um, in the future. But it's hard to know right now because it's also new. But you're right. I mean, my and I think there are so many services coming out now that can provide migraine medication without ever meeting the provider in person and things like that. It's all just fascinating and a little bit wild. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but it does give, especially like our rural population, a lot more access to opportunity that they wouldn't have had otherwise, which is definitely not a bad thing. Yeah. One of the hardest things I find, and I'm sure you find as well, is doing the visual field testing. Because it's so hard um, for the nurses to know how to do it properly, and so hard to be able to see through the computer what's happening without your vision being obstructed by someone standing in the way of the camera or something like that. Um, and I know of at least a few research projects going on to create some like goggles that will test the visual fields um, for that's you so virtually. So uh, there's a lot more technology I think that's out there, and maybe there's maybe there's a little robot out there going around tapping on reflex, <laughs> and it'll just be reflex routine. robot. <laughs> a reflex yeah, robot. yeah. There's also like I, I've, even in clinic, I, someone came to talk to us one time. There's like an app, like a camera or like a magnifier that you can put on your iPhone to do a fundoscopic yeah. exam, and then it takes a big blown up picture that yeah. you can then look on your. I had, iPhone. I had a medical student yeah. once with one of those. I don't I'm know like, that would be it, so yeah. much easier. Yes. <laughs> Why are we oh, like... Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Breathing <laughs> so in their face. So close to their face. Yeah. <laughs> Especially <laughs> in so, COVID time. I know, in COVID, yeah. COVID post-COVID yeah. COVID time. Why are, we, yeah. why are we breathing in their face? Yeah. I put on a mask now to do a, yeah. <laughs> a fundoscopic yeah. exam because I'm like, I can't believe I ever did this without a mask. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so sometimes like using the cards can be helpful. Um, yeah, like they'll ignore, yeah, part, of they'll ignore yeah, part of it. Yeah, yeah. But it's the last thing I do on every every coach stroke, uh, telestroke that I do is the visual fields because I know it's going to be a challenge. And by then, I've pretty much figured out what I want from the exam. But I do want to see if I can get the visual fields because I like to check all the boxes. And then I was taught how to how to instruct the nurse to do them. Um, and so I will use the same set of instructions every time. 
Which is what? Which is, Let's have them. <laughs> yeah. I'll say, okay, now you're going to turn your head to the nurse. Um, and, you know, I always try to get the name of the nurse ahead of time. So you're going to turn your head and face Kelly. And Kelly's going to show you one or two fingers in each of your four visual field quadrants. And you're going to tell her how many fingers you see. And inevitably, Kelly will not do that. Yeah. The instructions are for both the patient and the nurse. <laughs> and uh, some of the nurses listen, and they'll do exactly as I have instructed. But most of them have a preconceived notion of what I'm going to be saying, so they just kind of tune me out and do their own thing anyway. And then they start doing, you know, four fingers sideways like this, and, and it's impossible to know how many fingers they're holding up. Or they'll start behind the patient's head and wiggle their fingers forward, which I have never quite understood. Yeah. And uh, so then I'll try like once or twice to redirect them because again, I don't know that it matters for this patient, but it may matter for the next patient. And if they're catching on, then then I'll, I'll I'm satisfied. And then maybe after it, Kelly says, "Well, God, that was awkward." And how do you do visual fields? You know, yeah. and kind of gets yeah. it figured yeah. and out. Then maybe she'll listen the next time. Like yeah, the exact same set of words. But you know, there is something to it, like to to trying to compare your own field yeah. in in a sense, like if Kelly <laughs> isn't yeah. standing appropriately right. centered right. and what have you. Or, you know, or yeah. the patient's looking at the monitor and she's off to the side yeah. and showing visual fields. So it it needs to be very done in a very precise way and, and most people don't. So so the other thing that we're doing um, from time to time is um, as the telestroke medical director and the telestroke nurse coordinator, she and I will occasionally go out to these outlying facilities and I think this is where one of the major strengths of our program is, is we actually go to the place and we run mock code strokes and I will be there in person but then I go and hide in a small room and log on to the computer and run through the code stroke as I would if I were in the hospital. And after the mock code stroke, we'll go through some in-depth teaching about how to do the um, virtual exam. Yeah. And that I think can be helpful, so. I do think that patients uh, like reassuring, you know, I've only ever seen families feel very um, confident that a smaller hospital was able to reach out to another, yeah. you know, bigger facility for this kind of specialty care. Like, I think families very much appreciate it. Yeah, you know? it is kind yeah. of hard. I think at least my experience going in person is that they're all um, happy to have us and, and happy to to show off what they've done to really elevate their own stroke care and also um, they want to they want to learn and they want that education and they want to be able to do the best to make it work as fast as possible and then they also want to do the best to work as fast as possible so they can get them out of their small hospital and onto the right. place that can provide definitive care as quickly as possible so. yeah i know but yeah it seems like the cat's out of the bag like this yeah. is here to stay yeah any final thoughts i'm sure there's things that i wish i would have asked but Last thoughts. Melanie used a, said that her attending came in through the omnipresence. Well, like maybe that should be the title of this episode. Just omnipresence. Like, omnipresence. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So we'll see what that looks That's like. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It's just such a different way to practice than anything I have thought. Um, but one helpful tip is to make sure you know who's in the room. Because one thing I never anticipated is like when you walk into a room as a human with good vision, you can very quickly identify all the other people in the room. But when you're on the video camera, you have no idea who's standing behind the video camera. And remembering to like pan around to see who, who is hearing your voice and hearing your thoughts and medical opinions. And then I have gotten to the habit of asking who else is in the room because I have been surprised or heard like something drop in the background and thought, oh my goodness, someone else is hearing me. 
someone could be recording me and a lot of fears kind of pop up about my own like medical decision making and what I'm explaining to people so just remember to always you know do the the, the things that you would have done in person but can't do on the computer well, in this conversation, I've certainly picked up some tips from Aubrey and Melanie about how to be an effective remote teleneurology clinician. At the hospital, my desk is in the same room with Dr. Greenway, and so I occasionally overhear her on a telestroke evaluation. She has developed a very thorough and patient technique to reliably assess a remote patient and to perform the NIH stroke scale. And I realize that I tend to be more cursory and superficial with my evaluations, which is at least partially because, for me, Telestroke can feel a little like the phone calls we used to regularly field from the surrounding smaller hospitals, asking for guidance about acute stroke treatments. We were effectively making the same decision, to treat or not to treat an acute stroke, through a conversation with an ER doc reviewing films or receiving the reports, and weighing the risks and benefits for the individual patient from what we could gather on the phone. It was a service we provided, though without cost because we didn't bill for those phone calls even though they required our time and high levels of decision making. And I think that probably occasionally there is information that I learn in seeing the patient remotely instead of just having a conversation with an ER doc, but not often. Maybe effectively, what the telestroke is offering is the opportunity to alleviate the ER doc of some time assessing the patient and an opportunity to be reimbursed for our services. But anyway, no matter what the difference is between telestroke and an emergent phone consultation may or may not be, I realize that this technology and this way of evaluating patients isn't going anywhere. And as with most things in life, the more you put in, the more you get out of it. So maybe it takes a little more effort to connect with patients or staff at remote hospitals or with colleagues who may live in other states. But it's a decision and a choice we can make when that's the medium we're working with. Well, that's all for now. If you have questions or comments about this or any other topic, write to us at secretlifeneuro at gmail.com. And don't forget to like, rate, and share this podcast.